Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the Shaw Library at the London School of Economics and Political Science. My name is Dr. Susan Liotto, and I have the great privilege of serving as Chair of Council. I'm delighted to be joined by students, faculty, staff, alumni, supporters, friends, and partners of LSE for tonight's very special celebration. This evening, before we listen to Professor Henry Louis Gates, Jr., in conversation with Sir Isaac Julian and LSE's own Dr. Imabong Umoren, we will award Professor Gates with an honorary doctorate to recognize and celebrate his truly outstanding contributions both to scholarship and to society. Through his peerless research and dedicated creative teaching, our honorand has had a profound impact on our understanding of African-American culture in particular, but also of the American experience more generally. Perhaps even more remarkably, he has changed the ways in which people in the USA and around the world view their own inheritances and learn from those of others. In a long career dedicated to exploring the powerful lessons unearthed in history and literature, he has pushed us to encounter cultures on their own terms and in their historical contexts, widened a narrow view of an academic field, and challenged us all to grapple with uncomfortable social truths. It is difficult to think of a figure whose contributions align more closely with the values of the school. Professor Gates has more than earned this honor. The awarding of an LSE honorary doctorate allows us to recognize extraordinary distinction and accomplishments in an area of scholarship or public activity in line with our guiding principles and vision, to be a community of people and ideas founded to know the causes of things for the betterment of society. Professor Gates, it is my great pleasure and privilege to welcome you to that global community. I am now pleased to introduce Deputy President and Vice Chancellor of LSE, Professor Charles Stafford, who will now offer the traditional oration and confer the award upon the honorand. I have to say, before I start, we had half an hour with a group of LSE students in a side room just now. The most beautiful 30 minutes of stories from tonight's on around I think I've just ever heard in my life. So moving, fantastic. And I think we're all really thrilled to be here tonight. So thank you for joining. Members of council, LSE faculty and staff, students, alumni, friends, and visitors, it's my tremendous privilege and pleasure to introduce Professor Henry Louis Gates, Jr. In his career as one of the most distinguished literary critics, historians, and educators of our time, Professor Gates has done something truly profound. Through his deep explorations of African and African-American culture and history, he's taught us, not only scholars and students, but also a much wider public, to embrace our interwoven past and see more of ourselves in each other. For the past three decades, he's been based at Harvard, where he holds the Alphonse Fletcher University Professorship and directs the Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research. 
His contributions to the broad field of African-American studies are huge, of course. Having discovered long-lost novels thought to be the first ever written by black Americans, having created the first archive of African and African-Americans in art, having pioneered new critical methods for interpreting the unique black cultural aesthetic, and having pushed all of us further away from a narrow Eurocentric view of culture and history towards a more pluralistic recognition of our common heritage. For this original and truly outstanding body of work, he has, of course, been feted with numerous academic honors. I have to tell you, the LSE is not the first uh, <laughs> you know, to do this, but ne never mind. But it's the best. It's the best. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but of course, Professor Gates is much more than a researcher. He's one of the great communicators alive today, as I just saw in the side room with the students. And his impact extends very far beyond the confines of Harvard Yard. In his work as a documentary filmmaker, he's illustrated black culture's outsized contributions to American life and the power of genealogical and historical research to enrich our views of ourselves and our world. These efforts have expanded the reach of powerful ideas and they've enlightened countless lives and they've rightfully made him a household name in the United States. To cite the one recent example, I was just explaining, actually made me cry. In his very recent PBS series on the black church and in the excellent accompanying book, Professor Gates explores the complex role of religion in African-American history as a site both of domination and liberation. The highly personal epilogue to the book and to the series gives readers a sense not only of why Professor Gates has a deep connection to this particular topic, but also why the black church has mattered so greatly to so many, housing as it did a culture that at its best was sublime, awesome, majestic, lofty, glorious, and at all points subversive of the larger culture of enslavement, to quote Professor Gates. So perhaps an academic ritual of the kind we're conducting tonight can never be quite so sublime as the practices that Professor Gates has explored in this recent work on the black church. And yet these academic rituals also matter, of course. And as I now speak the ritual words, I hope that you'll understand that I mean them very sincerely. LSE's motto exhorts us all to know the causes of things, which for the social and human sciences is another way of saying that we should find our roots as humans. For Professor Gates's tireless dedication to this particular pursuit, it's right and proper that a school focused on the study and betterment of society should acclaim him. Therefore, on the authority of the Council of the London School of Economics and Political Science, it's my sincere honor and privilege to admit Professor Henry Lewis Gates, Jr. to the honorary degree of Doctor of Literature. Professor Gates, thank you and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so very much. I'm deeply moved. It was a very kind introduction, Professor Stafford. 
this is a marvelous honor for me, ladies and gentlemen, an honor I could not have anticipated uh, or ever have imagined possible to tell you the truth. Honestly, it never crossed my mind that I could possibly even be considered to receive an honorary degree from LSE. Never. LSE has played a curious role in my imagination for a very long time. Something of a place of awe, for reasons that I'll explain in a minute. So back in June, imagine my surprise when I received a letter from Professor Eric Neumeyer informing me of my selection. I couldn't believe it. And I can tell you how very special this honor is by sharing an exchange I had about it with my wife, Dr. Marielle Iglesias Utset, after I finally shared the content of Professor Neumeyer's letter with her with great trepidation. Why the trepidation? Well, Marielle herself is an academic. She was a professor of ancient philosophy at the University of Havana for 25 years and is now a research fellow at Harvard, where her work focuses on the slave trade to Cuba. Marielle is not, quite honestly, long on pomp and circumstance, to say the least. <laughs> uh, nor is she nostalgic or sentimental. She took her first two degrees, two degrees at Moscow State. She did not attend her graduation ceremony and has not returned even once to campus in all of these years. <laughs> and the University of Havana does not celebrate graduation with commencement exercises and does not give honorary degrees. So she's really quite ambivalent about these kinds of honors and these kinds of ceremonies. So much so, in fact, that when I received an honorary degree a year ago, uh, from my alma mater, Marielle declared with much glee, okay, that's it, nothing can top this, so no more honorary degrees. In <laughs> and with some reluctance, because I do, you might have gathered, like pomp and circumstance, <laughs> I agreed. Then came the letter from Professor Neumeyer, dilemma. What would Marielle say, I wondered? What about our agreement, my promise? to turn away new honorary degrees. So I finally summoned up the courage to share the news with my wife, then braced myself for her reaction. And what did she say to my astonishment? Of course you'll accept this, you ninny. It's LSE. <laughs> <laughs> Why has LSE long held a special place in my imagination? When I was a sophomore at Yale, and was assigned Jomo Kenyatta's classic work of anthropology facing Mount Kenya. I was astonished to learn that a head of state in Africa had published an academic work of anthropological scholarship that had emerged from work he had done with Bronislaw Malinowski here at the London School of Economics, culminating in a postgraduate diploma in anthropology. Malinowski, in fact, had written the book's introduction exuberantly, if not exactly escaping a bit of condescension, saying um, that Kenyatta's book, and I quote, was one of the first really competent and instructive contributions <laughs> to African ethnography by a scholar of pure African heritage. <laughs> well, be that, he meant well. And this led to the discovery that Kenyatta was part of a circle of brilliant black intellectuals in London at that time including his best friend and mentor, George Padmore, a best man at Joe and Peggy Appiah's wedding. Isabel, Appiah, are you here? Ah, there's Isabel. Isabel is Anthony Appiah's friend. Most of you know Anthony Appiah's by uh, oldest and best friend. We were at Clare College. 
and Isabel's great-grandmother was sister of Beatrice Webb. How about that? Here in the Shaw Library, there you go. So, his best friend and mentor, George Padmore, best man at Joe and Peggy's wedding, and C.L.R. James, with whom Padmore formed the International African Friends of Abyssinia soon after Italy invaded Abyssinia, when Kenyatta becoming the organization's secretary. Now, also part of this exhilarating swirl of black intellection were the following. Paul Robeson, who enrolled at SOAS in 1934 to study Swahili and phonetics, and who wrote the seminal essay, I Want to Be an African While Living in London, and two essays that he published in The Spectator in 1934 while at LSE, and one of which he outlined the basic tenets of the negritude moment, movement unfolding over in Paris under Césaire and Senghor. And in I Want to Be African, Robeson said, and I quote, meanwhile in my music, my plays, my films, I want to carry always this central idea, to be African. Multitudes of men have died for less worthy ideals. It is even eminently worth living for, unquote. Robeson's wife, Eslanda, who enrolled in LSE between 1933 and 1935, and then again in 37 and 38, and Ralph Bunch, who arrived here in 1937, three years after taking his PhD in political science at Harvard, the first African-American to get a PhD in political science in the history of the United States. Not only did Bunch attend Malinowski's seminars, he too studied Swahili under Kenyatta. After studying full-time at LSE, uh, also studying full-time at LSE at this time, was a very young William Arthur Lewis, better known later as Sir Arthur Lewis from St. Lucia, graduated with honors in 1937, earned his PhD in economics here in 1940, and became the very first black faculty member at LSE. Both Bunch and Arthur, a dear friend, would be awarded the Nobel Prize, uh, the first for peace, the other for economics. In other words, if you wanted to be on the cutting edge of Pan-African cultural studies, African anthropology, and decolonization political activity, London, in the 30s was the place to be, and LSE was at the heart of it. And all of this I learned when I was 19 years old because we were assigned a book called Facing Mount Kenya in an undergraduate course at Yale. I used to try to imagine what it must have been like to be there at that time, to be part of the magic generated within this circle centered around LSE, how I envied them. And looking back, I believe that this was the source of my own dream of assembling a similar group of scholars and public intellectuals in an academic department whose work would focus on what my friend and former LSE professor Paul Gilroy brilliantly termed the Black Atlantic, as well as on the black world broadly, from the African continent to Europe and in the Caribbean, Afro-Latin America, and of course, black America. This also may have been the source of my own dream of studying abroad in England following graduation from Yale. When kids I was growing up with wanted to be Hank Aaron or Willie Mays, baseball players, nerd that I was, I was fantasizing about being a Rhodes Scholar, to tell you the truth. <laughs> and it was at Cambridge that Raymond Williams introduced me to the work of someone named Stuart Hall, though Professor Williams, oddly, never bothered to tell me that Stuart, like me, was a black man 
who had come to England to study from elsewhere. Seward's work, of course, would become the focus of black British cultural studies, to which all of us working in literature, art, music, and film on my side of the Atlantic owe an enormous debt. This then brings me to the aesthetic of the person who is about to join me in a few minutes on stage for a conversation, Sir Isaac Julian. One of the many things that I love about Isaac's work is his focus on the archive. During a call last Thursday with Sophia D'Angelico, who's been so fabulous to work with in preparation for this event, Isaac and I concurred that despite the sometimes dazzling work unfolding in the field of critical fabulation, nevertheless, as Isaac put it, there was still gold in the archives. And I want to end my remarks with a brief reflection on the importance of excavating the archives. One of the interventions that most excites me is the completion of some major archival projects that are revolutionizing, each in its own way, our knowledge of the history of race, the history of art, and the history of slavery more particularly. I believe these projects, directly facilitated by the revolution and digitization, will be among this generation's most lasting contributions to scholarship and to combating racism more generally. The mixed blessing, for some of us, the curse of African and African-American studies, is that we often have had to resurrect the texts in the traditions that we study before we can even begin to explicate those texts. And for some, that sort of work is dull, it is dry, it is laborious, while for some others, it is a labor of love. So I'm hoping that in this time of grand theory in the academy, renewed energy will be directed toward the archive. I want to mention briefly one extremely important and innovative archival project, which I believe has enormous implications that we are only just beginning to understand. And I'm thinking of the Center for the Study of the Legacies of British Slavery, founded and directed by Professor Catherine Hall, who's with us this evening. Its online encyclopedia of British slave ownership is, quote, a more or less complete census of slave ownership in the British Empire in the 1830s. At the time, slavery was abolished in 1833. And 20 million pounds awarded in reparations, not to the enslaved, of course, but to the slave owners, unquote. Catherine, this is a project of great vision with the most profound implications for our understanding of the costs and benefits of the institution of slavery, benefits and costs still accruing today. And I applaud you for undertaking the task and completing it so well. Catherine Hall, ladies and gentlemen. They that you supported the project from the Hutchins Center. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> there are volumes of PhD dissertations in this project alone, as well as our project, The Image of the Black in Western Art, which I've had the pleasure over the last two decades of co-editing with English art historian David Beinman, and the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database, two other projects that bear great promise for potentially influencing our understanding of the history of racism and affecting actual real-world social policy. And it's my hope that the work we do at the Hutchins Center at Harvard can engender more and more of these large-scale digital data projects. Seward Hall famously said, and I quote, that 
Race is the modality in which class is lived, the medium in which class relations are experienced, unquote. I love that formulation. This is the nexus in which so much of the work I'm trying to do is, in fact, embedded. As the head of a research center, I've tried to foster an atmosphere of scholarly collegiality, not nearly as exciting, I'm sure, as that created by Malinowski here at LSE in the 30s, but nonetheless, a place, a safe space, where thoughtful people can pursue thoughtful work to their own logical conclusions, in a space as far removed from ideological bullying and political correctness as possible. Not to undertake work that is removed from the world, rather work that can possibly be drawn upon to help change the world. Precisely when in my own country, the democratic institutions that we so cherish, at least in theory, and the freedom of ac academic inquiry in practice face daunting challenges that many of us thought had been long resolved. I've just come to London from the inauguration of Harvard's first black president, Claudine Gay, a week ago tomorrow, a first-generation descendant of Haitian immigrants and a scholar of African-American studies. Claudine's appointment as president calls to mind another black first, as it were, the election in 2008, of course, of the first black president of the United States. So many of us remember those times, remember that speech at Grant Park? So many of us thought a new day had truly dawned with Barack Obama's election, leading even some of the most sober scholars, drunk on exuberance, to declare what they hailed as the end of race, by which they meant the end of racism. Boy, was that wrong. <laughs> Instead, the election of the first black president roused the slumbering beast of white supremacy, now wide awake, plainly visible, and threatening the academic principles of freedom of speech and open inquiry that we all hold so dear. Can it be accidental that some 50 years after the birth of my own field, African-American studies, currently enjoying a renaissance, both of scholarship and institutional presence at the top so-called Ivy Plus universities, is also is facing the most sustained attack on our discipline through book banning, notably in states such as Texas and Florida, that we've experienced since students demanded the creation of the field back in 1968 in the wake of MLK's assassination. We need not agree on everything, but those of us who agree that we love truth and justice must fight for truth and justice, in large and in small. We must push back against the forces of tyranny and lost causes, against hatreds that seek to pit us one against another for ideological reasons, against men and women who seek to transform the beautiful differences between us into toxic rage, or who would impose centuries on the misguided silos that some of our well-meaning peers would erect over their disciplines and subject areas. We find ourselves in a vicious and destructive moment, my friends. Universities here in the UK, at home in the US and the world over, can lead the repair of the world by holding open space for debate, dialogue, and free thought. That nexus of race and class, so intriguingly defined by Stuart Hall, brings to mind the marvelous LSE motto, to understand the causes of things. To understand the causes of race-based perpetual slavery and anti-black racism, 
colonization and decolonization, as well as a complex set of relations between race and class and their myriad guises, has been the preoccupation, the obsession really, of a long, a very long line of thinkers of which I'm a very small part, most notably the great W.E.B. Du Bois, the circle of intellectuals studying here in the 1930s, and quite notably, the scholars of black British cultural studies, all led by Stuart Hall, of course, and Paul Gilroy, Hazel Carby, and Isaac Julian, among many other seminal thinkers. How could the world allow some 12.5 million Africans to be shipped in chains across the Atlantic Ocean between the beginning of the 16th century and just about the middle of the 19th century, to be followed in my own country by a full century of the rise and in institutionalization of white supremacy and Jim Crow racism? To understand these causes is at the heart of the work upon which we are embarked today, not just through the social sciences, but through the humanities and the arts as well. And that centuries-old discourse has still only yet begun to be carried on by our students, many of whom are gathered in this room this evening. To be here today in this place that gave rise to so much thought and action in pursuit of freedom and progress humbles me and honors me. Thus, in proudly heeding the advice of my beloved wife, Marielle. Of course, I accept. <laughs> Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Welcome to tonight's very, very special event, um, also hosted by the US Phelan Centre here at the LSE. My name is Imabong Umoren and I'm a historian. I teach in the Department of International History on histories relating to the African diaspora, in particular histories relating to gender and racism in the Caribbean, Britain and the US. And I am so honoured to be in conversation with two outstanding guests whose work has inspired my own, whose work has lit up and animated my classrooms in so many meaningful ways. I'm now going to introduce our speakers. So, Henry Louis Gates Jr. is the Alphonse Fletcher University Professor and Director of the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research at Harvard University, Emmy and Peabody Award-winning filmmaker, literary scholar, journalist, cultural critic, and institution builder. Professor Gates has published numerous books and produced and hosted an array of moving, beautiful, and monumental documentary films. Sir Isaac Julian is a Turner Prize-nominated artist and filmmaker and a recipient of the Royal Academy of Arts Charles Williston Award and appointed a commander of the Order of the British Empire, CBE, in 2017. 
Julianne creates multi-screen film installations and photographs that incorporate different artistic disciplines to create a poetic and unique visual language with his recent show, What Freedom Is To Me, exhibited at Tate Britain. Born in 1960 in London, he is one of the most prominent figures at the intersection of media art and cinema today. Julian was awarded a knighthood, Knight Bachelor, in the Queen's Jubilee Birthday Honours list 2022. And as I said, it is so wonderful to be in conversation with both of you. Thank you. Tonight, we're going to be discussing this theme of recovering enslaved people's perspectives from archives, literature, and art. And how it's going to run is that I have a set of questions I'm going to ask both of our guests, and we're going to be in conversation for around 35 to 40 minutes. Before I open it up to you guys in the audience um, to ask questions, which will hopefully last for around 15 minutes. So as we're speaking, please do have your thinking caps on so that we can all engage in a really rich um, dialogue afterwards. Okay, so this is super exciting. Let's make a start. Okay, so let me start with you, Professor Gates. Now, you recently published a really fascinating piece in the New York uh, Review of Books that kind of charted the arc of your career from your kind of childhood interest in history to being one of the most um, sort of popular um, documentary series producers. Can you tell us a little bit about how, how this arc formed? Can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up making really influential documentaries that trace the diversity of black histories? Well, the idea that I would be a filmmaker, I mean, it just never had occurred to me. Uh, I was raised to be a doctor, as I told the students before this wonderful ceremony. When I was growing up, the smart little uh, color boys and color girls that we would have said in the 50s were all going to be doctors. From my mother in heaven, the father, the son, the Holy Ghost, and a medical doctor. That was just the way it was. <laughs> because you made the most money, you had the most respect, you were the smartest people. That's just the way it was. My older brother, Paul, my only brother, uh, is an oral surgeon, so he kind of checked that box. <laughs> this idea I would become a professor of English literature just never, ever was floated in my household, let alone making films. Those two things changed in England, or because of me. When I, I graduated in history, I did very well at Yale, and on the way to med school, I wanted to go to Oxford to get a degree. I wanted to be, as I said, when other kids wanted to be you know, famous athletes, I wanted to be a Rhodes Scholar. And I got a fellowship, finally, to go to uh, Clare College. And at Clare, I met um, Wally Shoyinka, who was there in exile, and then Kwame Anthony Apia. Isabel's brother, <laughs> and you all know them. And they took me to an um, Indian meal 50 years ago this month in Cambridge, after we had known each other just a few weeks. And they got me plastered on wine. I was telling the students, my generation at Yale, how can I put this? Did not get inebriated drinking wine. We got inebriated more vaporous forms. <laughs> we used the cheapest wines to fill hookahs with, you know, like Mad Dog 2020 and Moon's Farmed Apple Wine and look at Bert Cooper, my Yale classmate. He's laughing because he knows I'm telling the truth. So, and Shoyuk is quite a connoisseur of wine. So he said, look, you're going to be a civilized person. You have to learn how to drink wine. So, okay. so I'm very uh, heady. 
And um, Wally and Anthony, you know, they banged the glass and they said, look, we have been sent here from the future to give you a message. You're not going to be some damn medical doctor. You're going to be a professor of African and African American studies. And ladies and gentlemen, I sat there and cried because it is really the thing I wanted to do, the thing that I was fantasizing about but didn't even have a language to articulate for myself. And that was the right place to start with Chirinka giving me individual supervisions in African literature and African mythology. As for the film part, mm -hmm. again, it involves the um, BBC. I saw Kenneth Clark's Civilization in 1970, mm -hmm. and it just knocked my head off. It's apocryphal, but, yeah. and it's racist, but, but you know, the story is that Woodrow Wilson screened um, his John Hopkins classmate, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation at the White House that said it was history written with lightning, more or less. Nobody knows whether that's true, but um, that's what it said. Seeing Kenneth Clark stand up there and give you a lecture on his feet and walk you through the history of Western art, it just knocked my socks off. And a couple years later, there was Jacob Bronowski's The Ascent of Man. And I sort of have a deep fantasy that I, as I wrote in the New York Review of Books, that maybe I could do that. So the greatest black documentary filmmaker was Henry Hampton, and he, he lived in Boston. He did Eyes on the Prize. And when I went to Harvard in 1991, Alberta Arthurs, who was a big wig at the Rockefeller Foundation, said, you should meet Henry Hampton. So I went down to see him. Blackside was his studio. And he walked me through the process of making a documentary film from concept to, and by the end of the day, man, I was, I was hooked. And so I said to him, you know, Henry, in England, they have sometimes professors like me standing in front of a camera. <laughs> and, and I swear to God, he looked at me, Isaac, for a long time and he said, yeah, that's in English. <laughs> so I went, oh, that's not going to happen. So the, the final speed in this story mm -hmm. is 1992. A year later, mm -hmm. I published a book about the Cannon Wars mm -hmm. from Oxford Press. And they brought me over here on a book tour. And I was on a late night talk show. I can't even remember what it was called. And a woman named Jane Root, who co-founded Walter Wall Productions, a very famous production company uh, here in London, was watching me. She was in bed in her PJs. And she said, I'm going to make him a star. I'm going to put you, I'm going to put him on camera. And she wrote to me, I wanted it so badly, uh, the letter terrified me. I couldn't believe that someone had dialed my number, you know, that I hadn't told anybody, nobody, about this fantasy, except kind of Henry, and he had squashed it. <laughs> and she persisted, and she, my first four films were made with Jane Root. She raised the money, they were on BBC, and that was about two dozen films ago. And, you know, God, I thank God every day for Jane Root and the BBC. <laughs> yeah, such an amazing, amazing story. Um, okay, Sir Isaac Julian, your work really pushes boundaries between film and art and compels viewers to face arguably some of the most critical issues of our time, whether that's migration, racism, legacies of enslavement, and sexuality. What role do you think art plays in helping us to understand these issues? I mean, well, I think in a way, kind of, it, I mean, it's really interesting for me in terms of thinking about um, the making of works. So I think, of course, 
I mean, I, I was looking also at television, you know, as, you know, a young child and not feeling there was really this kind of representation or breath that I needed to, in a way, feel like a person. And, of course, I think there's a way in which being able to bring together what may seem to be a first sight, something which is not really possible, i.e. the imaging of the black subject or telling the stories, these sorts of things, in a sense, I mean, my own experience was, you know, unusual in terms of my exposure to film making and photography as a teenager. But I would say that the kind of inspiration relationship to making works um, for me and, and their role stems actually from I mean, for me, in a very personal way, the kind of um, struggles, I mean, my early works, who could Colin Roach, um, as an art student, being a little bit transgressive, getting those brand new video art cameras out of the art school and taking them onto a demonstration wasn't quite what my professors imagined <laughs> I should do with them, but it was really the beginning of um, making work for me. But I would say that moving on in relationship to, well, if I, if I think about that moment, it's the early 80s, there is civil unrest, um, there are riots taking place um, in mainland Britain, and I would say that my formation you know, comes out of this moment, but I think I wanted to instill um, within my works something else, another kind of register. And it's really, you know, in the mid-80s, in fact, being very much inspired by Skip Gates um, and the writings of um, Anthony Appiah in Race, Writing and Difference, where we begin to make this sort of correlation. And of course, it's also um, in the kind of conversations and exchanges, you know, between um, scholars like Paul Gilroy, who are sitting here, and being able to be introduced to a whole society, really, of intellectuals. Of course, Stuart Hall was very much at the forefront. And, and I think in a similar way, you know, his presence on television, that sort of media was a very important catalyst. And I saw that, in a way, making films um, and making art would be an important catalyst for a sort of expression of oneself. And so I think that is really, you know, where it all begins, you know. And I think, in a sense, it's then the relationship then between the canordiates of what was, which we kind of follow in relationship to, you know, Paul's brilliant theorization, the Black Atlantic, and following those roots, which we were able to sort of in a way, start to bring together a kind of language, you know. And I think it's, it's like an ongoing one in terms of my practice, you know, and it results in what um, Skip was talking about in his lecture around people being obsessed, I would say now, with the archive, you know. So it, it results in, you know, producing a work like Lessons of the Hour and sort of making this publication 
because, of course, writing and, in a way, literary criticism and all of those things are what are interpolating my practice in relationship to making sort of like art. And, of course, you know, I'm not the only one that's in this archival fever moment, you know, because I have a present skip um, from someone who's a great admirer of yours, Sadie Smith. Right. And she wasn't able to be here, but she wanted me to give you her book. Um, and here we have this new novel, The Fraud, yeah. set, of course, in the 19th century. So another person that's really interested in this whole area. And we're all, as it were, we're following, to some extent, in Catherine's footsteps. But she wrote a very interesting note for you in the beginning that you may want to read and share. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. <laughs> do you, wanna... you, want me, you want me to read it? Okay. Dear Skip, I'm missing your great unveiling, but everybody already knows your damn masterpiece. <laughs> Yours, Zadie Smith. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Thank you. I love Zadie. And this is fascinating. It's gotten great reviews yeah. from the 19th century. Precisely. But there is a tension. Some people don't want to do the work of the archives, as I tried to suggest. You know, it's easier to make it up rather than to go back to the archive. But the archives have never been more uh, open, more exploitable, as it were, more discoverable, more searchable. And that we have to push people back in the archives because it's, it's hard work. But it is what, what it yields. There's so many uh, good stories there. Thousands. I mean, it's a stupid thing to say. There's zillions of, of stories that we can, and excavating the information in the archives will allow us to tell the narrative in a fuller um, and more accurate um, and complex way. So I like that. So I have a question about archives. Okay. So as we've all been kind of discussing, um, archives exist in manifold ways, and they present, I would say, scholars with both opportunities, possibilities, but also limits and problems especially regarding whose voice is heard in the archives, the silences of the archives, the violence of the archives also, um, which so many scholars of enslavement and the black experience more broadly have done amazing work on highlighting. How do you both kind of approach or deal with some of the kind of real conflicting power dynamics of the archives or archives in general? I think I've always seen them as a springboard for um, the reimagination or the kind of reconstruction um, of, you know, constructing the spaces and the absences that these erasures are spaces where, if one follows an archival trail, in a sense, you know, there are nuances which can be brought to life, and those things are brought to life by both the aid of a certain scholarly approach in terms of the relationship that I, in a way, have to scholars um, and to texts, but then also that is that part of the kind of, of course, what's been termed critical fabulation, where basically one is able to, as it were, reconstruct the spaces and to give those sort of nuances. And I think, you know, this is something which is very much part of making my early work, Looking for Langston in 1989, is connected to Lessons of the Hour, 
and my recent work, Once Again Statues Never Die, which is a kind of portrait of Alan Locke. And so I think there's a way in which, um, you know, and there is, of course, you know, when we originally were made film with Mark Nash, my partner sitting here at the front, you know, there wasn't the internet. You know, he went to MoMA, he went to Schomburg, he went to Washington. Um, we had to find the, the pieces, you know, the photographic evidence through Van der Zee or through, um, you know, a myriad sort of archival spaces which were located in Harlem and not in not on Google, right? right. You know, so, right. yeah, I mean, I think there's that sort of general sort of inspirational aspect mm. that they provide for mm. really making um, images and um, the telling stories which, you know, need to be told in a kind of unique way. Mm. Remarkably, I've learned more about... Oh, sorry. sorry. I've learned probably more about archival research since I started hosting Finding Your Roots um, than I knew before because of doing some of my genealogies dependent upon the archives, right? Um, and if you're from a colony of Europe, right? If, you are, um, if your country was Roman Catholic, there's a good chance we could find a hell of a lot about you, you know, hundreds of years ago whether you're from Jamaica or Barbados or Peru and Mexico or, you know, wherever it is. Because priests up in, in these little provinces would say, present it to me, a boy, uh, born na uh, a natural child, meaning out of wedlock, <laughs> on this day, and with his, his name. And these records still exist. God bless the Church of Jesus Day, um, I mean, the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, because they've digitized a zillion records, you know, because of their particular religious beliefs that they can baptize people who are, who are long gone. Um, and we have access to those records through Family Search and through Ancestry.com. Take Malcolm Gladwell. We talk about uh, making the, the narrative more complicated. Malcolm Gladwell, you all know, the popular writer. He's uh, half Jamaican, half English, and his mother is Jamaican. So I did his family tree in 2009. His sixth great grandmother, I think 1734, owned slaves, right? He almost had a heart attack. His black grandmother owned slaves in, in Jamaica. Well, this is not what we think of when we think of the slave trade. Mm -hmm. We don't think of black people or any other black people. Mm -hmm. Nor do we, it's very difficult for us to confront the fact that a, a scholar recently, um, I read a review in the New York Review of Books, the scholar said 99% of the Africans captured in the slave trade were captured by other Africans and then sold to Europeans along the coast. I said that in a documentary series in 1998. Ali Missouri said, perhaps we should not issue a fatwa mm -hmm. on him. It was really nasty. And only Shoinka saved me. Shoinka was like, came on a white horse from over the hill in Yoruba land and said, if you mess with him, you have to mess with me. But people were, thought it was outrageous that I admit, or either made it up, I was accused of bribing informants, other professors on the African continent to lie 
to exonerate white people, and particularly Jewish people, because Farrakhan had subsidized the publication of a, a scandalous book called The Secret Relationship Between Blacks and Jews, claiming that it was Jews who ran the slave trade. It was African merchants and, and the elite that ran the slave trade. It wouldn't have been a slave trade without the complicity and the agency of Africans. And the Europeans, of course, um, it, it was a partnership, a business partnership. We have to be honest about that kind of thing. We cannot make progress. I think the African continent needs to be honest about the role of African elites in the slave trade, and they have uh, scarcely begun to, to do that, and that's a real problem. And it produced a class of um, mulattoes because um, African uh, kings insisted that Europeans trade with them, marry their daughters, and, and make them complicit in the trade, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. but, so that on the granular level, through genealogical records, we're able to tell a new narrative. And then on the level of big data, through, the, say, the transatlantic slave trade database, which in that, when we had a meeting with the students, we now know there are 12.5 million Africans shipped to the New World um, between um, the early 1500s and 1866, as I mentioned. 50% um, die in the Middle Passage. 7.7 .7 million get off the boat. Parlor game I like to play is to ask people how many came to the United States. And the answer is 388,000. Out of 10.7 million, 388,000. That's it. A million went to Jamaica. Uh, almost a million went to Cuba. 772,000 went to Haiti, and five million went to Brazil. Until this, these data were assembled, nobody knew that. I mean, a handful of specialists. You, you can't even believe it. You can't even believe it, but that's, that's the truth. You recently referred to there being gold in the archives. What do you mean by that? Any young scholar who comes to me to say, how could I make my reputation? How can I be a star? Yeah. I would say, find something in the art. Okay. Something, <laughs> something nobody else has seen. Yeah. First of all, you can't, you can't have critics if nobody else has seen the data. <laughs> if you write one more essay about Shakespeare, Jesus Christ, everybody in here. <laughs> but there's that thrill of every time, I mean, a couple times in my career, I've discovered something. Yeah. And the, the first time, the first novel, published by an African-American woman in print, Harriet Wilson's Our Nig. Mm -hmm. It's a funny thing. I ordered a copy uh, from Amazon, and it, it came, Catherine, and, you know, Alexa tells you that there's a, you know, book has arrived. Alexa said, your book, bloop. No, our bloop has arrived. <laughs> I went, God damn, that's cold. <laughs> Alexa's got political correct. <laughs> and then one that was very controversial, very, and Hannah Crafts, The Bond to Woman's Narrative. I bought a manuscript at an auction. And a woman who had been a friend of mine, the greatest bibliophile in the history of the United States, black bibliophile, Dorothy Porter, who was a librarian at Howard University, had this manuscript in her possession. And she used to tell me, tease me, when we'd have a drink, she loved martinis. She said, I have something's going to blow that iron nigga away. And I would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a hologram manuscript, which means a handwritten um, manuscript over 300 pages, purportedly written by a fugitive slave. And I bought it at an auction. And I sent a white man who worked on my staff to buy it. Because if I showed up in the room, it would have been, you know, <laughs> Oprah was doing the same thing. Oprah's white guy was there. <laughs> That's what I've been against now, you know, like these rich black people, <laughs> plus institutions. I was the only bidder I got for $7,500. So I spent months, a year, 
um, Iron Gall ink, the pa dating the paper, the glue that she used for revisions, everything. I found the name of the slave owner, mm -hmm. the plantation, so much about it. Mm -hmm. Everything but who she actually was. Mm -hmm. And but I released it very honestly, mm -hmm. saying what I knew, what I didn't know. Mm -hmm. A facsimile edition of the handwritten manuscript. And it sold 200,000 hardback copies mm -hmm. and was on the Times bestseller list for 16 weeks. But I got pushback from, from scholars saying, uh, you didn't really find it. <laughs> and could a black person, really condescending, could a black person, a black woman, have written anything so sophisticated because she lifted passages from Bleak House and it was very intertextual, right? Mm. So she was very well read. Mm. And they said, no, we think a white woman. Published it, whatever. And in uh, two weeks, a young scholar named Greg Hekimovich, who was chairman of the English department at Furman University, spent 20 years taking me on. And he told me to my face, I'm doing this project to prove that you're wrong. What you did was preliminary and, you know, sort of irresponsible, and I'm going to prove that you're wrong. And in two weeks, uh, The Life and Times of Hannah Crafts being published with an introduction by Henry Louis Gates Jr. And everything that I theorized was absolutely the case. <laughs> That manuscript, Paul was there. I donated it to Mother Yale, to the Beinecke, where I wrote so much of my PhD thesis in pencil back in the day, because you had to do that in a rare book library. And when I donated it, whatever year that was, Paul, it was appraised at, remember I paid seven five. It was appraised at 350000 also I had a tax deduction. And now, <laughs> now it's appraised at over a million dollars, because Holograph manuscripts for white canonical authors are rare. For Melville Hawthor, Hawthorne, they would give their manuscript to a printer, the printer would print it and throw it in the trash. So any holograph manuscript is quite valuable. And to have one of the first black woman to write a novel, and she escaped to the North, she dressed like a man, she ended up teaching in New Jersey. I was interviewed by the New York Times about Greg's work. And it's, how many of you have seen Oppenheimer? Okay, so that's the big thing in the Southern States. So Oppenheimer theorized black holes in 1939, and it was only through one of the telescopes, it was the acronym I forget, in 2015, that you could see a black hole. That's my relationship to Greg Heckebuck. I theorized this woman, and he proved it. That's exciting. That's a really exciting thing. And more exciting, because I was right. <laughs> <laughs> OK, we only have a couple minutes left, so I kind of want to ask. I ain't going nowhere. I know. <laughs> I want to get the audience in as well, but I want to ask a question about something you mentioned in, in your speech, which is a lot about the kind of politics of today, right? As you mentioned, there have been increasing, and there's always been, but increasing attempts to kind of silence, minimize histories of the black experience, in particular, legacies of, of enslavement, the teaching of history. And your works, all of your, both of your works, have been instrumental in challenging and pushing that back. And giving, He's been said to. In giving visibility, right? The Langston Hughes estate wouldn't even give him permission mm -hmm. to use certain things because he said Langston Hughes was gay. And they said, you can't prove that, right? That's right. <laughs> and he made the film anyway. Yeah. I was really proud of that. Were you worried that they would sue you? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, they could. I mean, I think the artist's prerogative really is to really think about the ways in which you can 
see a kind of, if you like, field, and some of it could be humanities. Mm. I mean, in terms of what I was seeing, and then, you know, the artists can probe those questions that perhaps you can't do necessarily, you know, in that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so I think it, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, there was a, a whole thing that went on. Um, <laughs> but I mean, of course, you know, 1989, we're in 2023, and that form got taught in, you know, over the United States and in England and Europe, and so, yeah. Now, censorship has been, in part because of the uses to which our literature and art, <clears throat> our public discourses, were used in the battle over the nature of the African. You know, were we more ape-like? Were we more related to monkeys than to white people in Europe? This, seriously, that's not hyperbolic. This is a discourse in the Enlightenment at its extremes. Uh, what was the place of the African on the great chain of being? How would we know? Were we more animal-like? or Were we the top of the animal kingdom or the bottom of the human community? And how would you, like, blah, 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 you all know all this stuff. So what developed within the race was what I call the board of black censorship. <laughs> you can't be saying Langston Hughes is gay because that will embarrass the race. And I don't know if the black people from the black societies representing in this room had this concept, but embarrassing the race is the worst thing that you could do. And it, it had mundane manifestations. I love to swim. I love to go to the swimming pool. I, Every day in the summer, I would go to the swimming pool. And my mother, and the swimming, the schools integrated in my county in 1955. And I started first grade, in, first grade in 1956. I went to the white school. But the swimming pool didn't integrate until a year later. There was a big controversy because all these black and white bodies, you know, and nudity, semi-nudity. But for my mother, the concern was that my brother and I would not embarrass the race. How would we do that? By turning ashy in front of white people, right? So that when you get out of the swimming pool, my mom would say, she would give me Avon moisturizer. And she said, Skippy, when you get out of the swimming pool, baby, you dry off. Yes, mama, and you put this Avon moisturizer cream on because we cannot afford in 1957 to embarrass the race. So I lathered it all over my body, boy. I, I love my mama and I didn't want to embarrass the race. But on that level, all the way to, you can't say Langston Hughes is gay. Um, what's wrong with you? You know, you can't say Martin Luther King slept around. What's wrong with you, fool? Martin Luther King. So we have to stand up against our own people uh, often. And my job as a, a critic and the job of us as professors is keep political correctness out of the classroom, keep political correctness out of the academy. We have to let people call it the way that they see it, even if we don't disagree, even if they're coming out of a right-wing bag, um, a Marxist bag, a capitalist bag, I mean, whatever. I, I firmly believe that, and I won't, um, I won't take part in censoring people because of their ideology. I think it's disgusting. Uh, censorship is to art, is lynching, is to justice. I've said it before, and I mean it. And as long as I'm running the Hudson say. Well, on that note, let's open it up to Q&A. Okay. We have around 10 minutes. 
um, for questions and answers. I think we're going to gather a couple of questions, maybe two or three. Um, so if anyone would like to ask a question, please raise your hand. There are stewards around who will come and give you a microphone. Students in the room in particular would love to hear from you. Um, so please do ask your questions. I see a hand. Brother there. Yeah, let's go for this, this gentleman here. Hello. I think it's fascinating how your work is there in the past. Um, I was just wondering, how much of the past do you think has been lost, and how much do you think is recovered? Should we gather a couple, couple more questions? Yeah, the boss. Okay, the boss. let's gather some more. Are there any other questions? At the back, I see a hand. Thank you very much for the talk. Um, I watched your um, Who Do You Think You Are? Oh, yeah. yeah and um, what was the most difficult aspect of uh, archiving in piecing together your guests' stories. Okay. Um, what was the thing that came out of your experience of uh, talking about the history of each individual uh, guest on your show? Okay. Okay, it's two questions and then we'll, we'll go that back out again. Okay, you want to start? How much of the archive do you yeah. think has been lost? So we don't know because it's been lost, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. When I think in a way, I mean, if you start from that point, then in a way, yes, you know, it would be, I mean, it would be unsurmountable, you know, how much has been lost. But I think it's really about how one is strategic about the kind of re retrieval, you know, and that is a whole other approach, you know, that one can use. And I think the question of the imagination becomes you know, a, an important sort of aspect of that, you know, so I think it's really about how the imaginary um, becomes part of how one retraces those footsteps, you know, we know that Tony Morrison was someone who was, you know, in the archive and reconstructing aspects, you know, especially if I think about novels like Jazz, for example. Yeah. And My favourite of her novels. Yeah, and so I think there's a possible work, there's a possible work that needs to have this aspect mm -hmm. sutured into it. Mm. Yeah. I like that phrase, sutured into it. That's good. When I was growing up, black people couldn't do their family trees, right? Because of slavery. They were always remember, there, between 10 and 12% of our people were free in any given time before, between 1800 and 1860. Right? And if you're free in the United States, even if you're black, you were listed by name in the federal census. If you weren't a free person, you didn't have a legal name, right? So you weren't in the federal census. You would be listed in the 1850 and 1860 census in something called the slave schedule. And you had to find the white person who owned your ancestor. And then on a list of their property would be listed a male, approximate age, color, either mulatto or, or black, and gender, but not a name. So Frederick Douglass famously said in his second autobiography, My Bondage and My Freedom, genealogical trees do not grow in slavery in 1855. But it turns out they do. Because of the revolution in digitization, paradoxically, you can find your enslaved ancestors' genealogy if you find the white man or woman who owned them. Because in their estate records, tax records, whatever, they would have to list your ancestor by first name. Because you couldn't pass in a will your 
slave Henry to your daughter without listing Henry's name. So through a curious process, we can find where your ancestor was in 1870, the first federal census to list all black people by name, five years after the end of the Civil War. Then look at the same county, 10 years before, for slave owners with the same surname and see if they owned anyone 10 years younger than your ancestor in the 1870. It's not foolproof, but we were remarkably successful. So now, we, we have never struck out in finding your roots. We've done hundreds of people. Um, we've never struck out, and we, we've always gotten back at least 200 years for any, every African American we've done. The other surprise, is that no African American has been, all my guests are tested by 23andMe and Ancestry.com. Uh, and I've had to work really hard uh, to learn about genetics with great tutors from Harvard. And, and I know a fair amount, I mean, forgot the PhD in English, <laughs> I think I do pretty well. But um, no black American is 100% black. Not one has ever been tested by 23andMe or Ancestry who was 100% Sub-Saharan African. And this is over the last 500 years. Meaning if we had your ideal family tree over 500 years, not one would not have a white person on that family tree. The, and here are the shocking statistics. The average African American is 24.8% European. 24.8. Native American, all African Americans think they, they descend from you know, City Bull or something. And only the average African American is 0.8% Native American. And they would talk about your, their great-great-grandmother's high cheekbones and straight black hair. The reason she had high cheekbones and straight black hair is because of all that white ancestry that you had. Because of rape and cajoled sexuality. Sometimes, though, um, shockingly, we find um, Morgan Freeman. You all know Morgan Freeman. I did his family tree. His um, third-great-grandmother had children with the uh, overseer on a plantation in Mississippi. Must be rape, right? Overseer. Simon Legree. Well, guess what? At the end of the Civil War, they lived together. They lived together. They had nine children. And they lived together for the rest of their lives in Atala County, Mississippi, and were buried next to each other. What the hell is that? That is the kind of complexity that's buried in the archive. I can't begin to explain that relationship. But it's there. So to answer his question, in Frederick Douglass's time, we would have said all black genealogies lost. All black ancestry is lost, but now we know it's not. We just have to get at it counterintuitively, which is quite, quite exciting. Okay, any more questions? Perfect, we've got three questions on this side. Can we get some microphones here, please, this um, lady in the front? Um, I was just wondering, um, when you speak about current or um, not about um, demographics um, and future demographics. We're like a quarter of the way in, in this century. Um, and so somewhere like Africa, 1.5 billion people. We're going to be 3 billion by the end of the century. I think it's something like, every, you know, I think it's three or four out of every five children will be African by the end of the century. How do we explain, do you think, or how will we have, because Africa has hardly any statistical records currently, how will we explain genealogy and how will they understand this past century, do you think, at the end of this century? Two great questions. Okay. You want to take one of those? I'm in the question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, since colonialism, 
they were fabulous written records. I mean, anywhere the Brits were, they were making all kinds of, you know, people in the outposts and all they were doing, writing down the details about, uh, and the missionaries. It's the same, that's what I was alluding to, that if you were from a country that was colonized, it was a good bureaucracy, and the church, and the Anglican church was just as good as the Roman Catholic church. Um, you can, it's gold mine. I mean, we, we can uh, do genealogy. And now, since independence, of course, there, wouldn't you say there were fabulous um, records since the last 60 years kept, or no? Well, I think, unfortunately, in loads of places, the first thing that is, is stopped in countries that are poor is people stop taking statistical records. So data is really poor across oh, right. the continent at the moment, unfortunately. Well, you're saying, in effect, perhaps the data collection was better when the British were there than when the British left. You yes. know, that's a sad thing to say. Yes. I think, this is not a direct answer to your question, but when I think of three out of, well, you mean three out of four human beings would be yeah. African, okay. Whenever I go, I was talking to one of the students who's from South Africa, and I love Cape Town, right? I have an honorary degree from Cape Town. <laughs> Back in the days when I accepted honorary. <laughs> and I love a little fishing village called Cork Bay. So whenever we go to South Africa, when you land at the airport and you drive for miles through those shanty towns, man, and, and when you go to Soweto and you know there are four million people, that, I don't know about you, when I first heard Soweto, I just thought it was a little, you know, ghetto or something, right? It's not, it's like a country. The distribution of wealth is the biggest crisis facing our people in the African continent, without a doubt. How we can increase the size, get people from the, as it were, the no class to the working class and the working class to the middle class. How can we do that? That is the challenge. Um, I was talking last night to a group of friends, Andrew Rammer, took me and members of the Boule. And I hosted them on the board of the Aspen Institute. And I hosted a conversation once between Condi Rice and Madeline Albert. And I asked them, which is, because Mar Marielle and I argue about this all the time because she's Cuban, um, which comes first, economic freedom or political? One person, one vote or give people access to the means of production, you know, so you can, you can rise. And predictably, but not, not a surprise, uh, Madeline said economics, and Condi said one person, uh, one vote. We have to figure out how we can affect economic reform on the continent to move these masses of people living in these shanty towns out of these, this, this, this horrible existence into um, places with electricity and running water and people have hope. Otherwise, I think what we're going to see is just continuous revolution. Mm -hmm. And we've had seven coups, seven coups in sub-Saharan Africa in the last couple of years, right? Mm -hmm. What's going to happen with that? I, I always think of South Africa is just a tinderbox. Boom! And it's just going to blow up because the, the one, you talk about the one percent. Yeah. And, you know, there's Cyril who's a billionaire. The guys in the ANC or on, on Robin, they became the wealthy people. And they go, hey, you know, this hegemony wasn't so bad. They just needed some black people, in, right? <laughs> um, it's so easy to succumb to that temptation of wealth and not want to distribute resources fairly. That is the challenge of, of Africa to me. And I don't see anybody who's practicing in innovative policies. I hope I'm wrong and can be correct. But when I go visit my friends in Nigeria, there are all these area boys, as they call them, outside. They live in armed camps in South Africa. My friends can't jog down the street. There's a guard at the, the, at the corner. 
you know, when I when we drive home, we live three blocks from my office in Harvard. I think how many guards would I encounter if I were in Lagos or Dar or in our neighborhood? We live in a fabulous neighborhood, and they're none. You know, I can walk down. I'm not going to get mugged, most likely. And if you do that in Cape Town, in Joburg, in the comparable neighborhood, you would it. It's insufferable. But my friends have gotten used to it. They're not even aware that they're in a claustrophobic economic environment. So it makes me sound like a um, socialist that Catherine Hall's having a heart attack. Think about it. <laughs> but it's true. We need to redistribute resources uh, dramatically. Don't you agree? I totally do. 60% of young people in South Africa are unemployed. Yeah. And you think of that number here. To have that many young people, and it's multi-generational. So you have yeah. in in some of the outside of Johannesburg, you have generations of people who are unemployed. How do you bring those people back to work? Right, it's very hard. It's well, someone sent me um, a time a link to the piece in the Times today, New York Times, about the uh, math scores in New York City. And Marielle, you can correct me. Seventy percent of the Asian kids passed. How many? What percent of the white kids? Fifty percent. 70% of... 75 Asian, 70... White. 75 Asian, 75 white, 30% black. 30% of the black kids in New York City passed the math test. Where's that going to leave us? You know, That has to be one of the most urgent social needs, social crises, fighting and inhibiting the progress of our, our people. Plus, we had this wave of right-wing lunatics, you know, who are trying to send us back to Africa, man. <laughs> I'm serious. They're like, I don't know how all you black studies people got in here, but we're going to get you the hell out of here. <laughs> That's what they roll back to affirmative action all about. Mm -hmm. It's terrible. It is terrible. So. I just want to end that happy about current research. Um, so we had a question about current research. Um, oh, yeah, what are you working on? Will you please tell us, if you can, if there is any. Yeah, Isaac, what is mischief are you up to? <laughs> Outing all these gay people. <laughs> cool. <laughs> you ought to be ashamed yeah. of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a few projects. I mean, some of them, I'm, I, I think I'm, I'll be going back to the 19th century very soon. So that's one end. <laughs> and the 80s. Okay. Yeah. And the 80s? 1980s? Yeah. Oh, that'd be good. Oh, we're looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. So. You want to tell us? You want to tell us any more about that, Sir Isaac? <laughs> When you talk about projects, they, you know. Yeah. Bad luck? Yeah, some West Indian superstition. Oh, yeah. okay. OK, well, okay. on that note, we have run over um, 8 o'clock, and I was told to finish at 8. Um, so thank you for those questions. Um, thank you for all of you coming. Um, please um, congratulate again uh, Professor Gates on this amazing achievement. And thank you to Sir Isaac Julian for being in conversation and for such a wonderful event. Um, please join me. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.